Hello, Curse Crew, and welcome to Curse or Coincidence, where each week we dive into famous curses from sports, movies, and history to separate fact from fiction, mystery from history, and ask, is it a curse or is it just a coincidence? I'm Nathan, and with me as always is the beautiful believer, Amy. How are you? I'm great. I'm holding a microphone literally against my head. Yeah, we've had some technical problems this week, so uh, don't know exactly how this uh, one's going to come out, but we soldier on and we hope for the best. Yeah, I mean, like, we are fully amateur hour, so... Yeah, it feels like me, amateur hour this week. <laughs> me sitting in a folding chair holding a microphone against my head has really demonstrated it's that. A very low-budget DIY yeah. podcast. Yeah. Last week, we, uh, unfortunately, we... We had to we had to skip a week. We had an, uh, an unforeseen uh, week of extreme busyness. I mean, you know, if we if we're if we're being honest with ourselves, we probably just tried to cram too much into one week, and something that had to give. Yep. And this is the first thing to be cut because we don't care about this podcast at all. <laughs> That's not true at all. Oh my god. <laughs> Sorry, I'm feeling real. I'm feeling real sassy, like sitting back with the microphone, just waving it around, all powerful. Temperature slowly rising in this yeah. attic of destruction. <laughs> yeah. No, no, no. I'm joking. It was actually really um, unfortunate that we couldn't record last week, and it felt like it was, you know, like a missing part of our. Yeah, it felt like a little piece was missing. Yeah. yeah. So it's really good to be back. And I'm, you know, I didn't receive any noti- notifications that anyone was particularly distressed by our absence, but I'm sure that people would pretty devastated. <laughs> Absolutely. I have a feeling. How could they not be? How could they not be? <laughs> so thanks for uh, for bearing with us uh, while we skip for a week. Uh, but this week, we are once again, as always, delving into a tale of a curse from sports, entertainment or history. We'll weigh the facts and the fiction and we'll decide once and for all if it is a curse or if it's all just a coincidence. So, Amy, in the past, we've talked about Hollywood curses. Yes, we have. We've talked about cursed objects as well. Yes, we have. So, this week, we're going to combine the two. We're going to talk about a potentially cursed Hollywood object, and I'm going to tell you all about the curse of the little bastard. (laughs) <laughs> that's so funny because that's what I call this microphone when we're testing it. <laughs> microphone I'm holding it. Am I holding it? You're Am hold- I holding the little bastard? I certainly hope not because uh, the, the as you as you and our listeners will learn, the little bastard is a, uh, a cursed object that has inflicted, potentially inflicted a lot of injury and, and uh, in some cases death as well. So, Little Bastard is the name that is given, or was given, to a 550 Porsche Spider purchased in 1955 by actor and all-around Hollywood heartthrob James Dean. Mm, yes. So, this is a car that would not only take Dean's life, but has also caused injury and death to a number of other people in the years preceding, leading many to believe that the Little Bastard is cursed. So, the Little Bastard survived. I mean, in it was never quite itself, but yeah. yes, I, I guess you could say it survived. Okay, all right. Uh, and it's had a number of uh, incarnations over the years, and we're going to learn all about them. Please, go on. So we're going to start by talking a little bit about James Dean, because we don't have many listeners who were, uh, I mean, James Dean is a bit of a cultural icon, but his, his life is probably not something that a lot of our listeners know about in depth. So we will talk a little bit about uh, about him. So James Byron Dean was born on the 8th of February, 1931 in Marion, Indiana. He was the only child of Mildred Marie and Winton Dean. Mm, some fancy names. They are. Winton was a farmer 
however, when he left farming to become a dental technician, the family moved to Santa Monica, California, where they lived for several years. Mm-hmm. So born in Indiana, moved when he was quite young to California. In 1938, James's mother, Mildred, was diagnosed with uterine cancer and died when he was nine years old. Oh, that's not nice. Mm. This hit James especially hard because he was incredibly close to his mother. And according to uh, Michael D'Angelo, who wrote a book about James Dean, Mildred was the only person that was truly capable of understanding him. Okay. So, obviously, fair bit of childhood trauma there from losing his mum at such a young age. Winston decided he was unable to care for James and he sent James, I know, he sent James to live with his aunt and uncle, Hortense and Marcus Winslow on their farm in Fairmont, Indiana. So he went back to Indiana. Indiana. That's right. That must be a bit of a letdown after being in Santa Monica. Yeah. And uh, talk about a culture shock because uh, Hortense and Marcus were Quakers. Okay. Yeah. Which is, I think, a bit of a kind of conservative, like a religious sect. I think like so. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I'm not. I'm not sure. I'm but... sure one of our American listeners would be able to fill us in. But, yeah, uh, or yeah. Google. So he he lived there and lived under their rule until he graduated high school, and then in May 1949 he moved back to California to live with his father. Wow. Who by this stage had actually remarried, so he lived with his father and his his new stepmother. Hmm. Mm. Dean enrolled in Santa Monica College and majored in pre-law. Wow. Yeah, so he started in law, but that was uh, very quickly he transferred to UCLA for one semester and changed his major to drama. Okay. This caused him to become quite estranged from his father. (laughs) Once again. (laughs) Once again. And he dropped out of UCLA in January of 1951 to pursue a full-time career as an actor. Okay. Yeah. So he had a number of appearances in TV commercials and guest TV shows, like quite small parts, mm-hmm. uh, and he did star on Broadway. But then in 1953, he was cast in East of Eden, for which he received critical acclaim. He then quickly followed up the role in Eden with a starring role as Jim Stark in Rebel Without a Cause, which was released in 1955, which is probably his most famous, famous role. role yeah. yeah. Also, incidentally, sat down and watched Rebel Without a Cause with my dad a couple of years ago. Don't get the hype. Yeah, I can't say I've ever seen it. It's weird. It's a strange movie. Yeah. Very strange movie. When was it released, did you say? 1954, I believe. Okay. Yeah, so they, he... he similar to a lot of the older actors that we've talked about in the past, Mm. you just start pumping them out. Once you get signed, it's like 53, then 54, then 55. Yeah. Yeah. Rebel Without a Cause would prove to be hugely popular among teenagers, and the film has been cited as an accurate representation of teenage angst in the 50s and is really what heavily attributed to that teen heartthrob persona that he cultivated in uh, in the 50s. Right. Dean's third and final film, Giant, was released posthumously in 1956. He only made three films. He actually only made three films. Wow. I don't know. I actually don't know much about James Dean, clearly. Yeah. Because everything you've said so far is basically brand new information to me. So this is not a deep dive into the life of James Dean? No, no, no. But I'm just saying, even those periphery things, I had no idea. I didn't know anything about him, apart from the fact that he died in a car accident. There's a lot of other stuff that I, I found during my research relationships that he he struck up with uh older like acting mentors there are potential sexual abuse uh, things that are tied up in that trigger I re- warning yeah i really just wanted to 
kind of start to set up a little bit of a, a little bit of how chaotic James's lifestyle was and and, mm. and his upbringing was, moving around from place to place, yeah. moving from house to house. You know, yeah, very, very not feeling loved, very reckless, very chaotic upbringing. Yeah, I um, but yeah, I I didn't know. I honestly am shocked to learn he only did three films. Mm. My only exposure to James Dean mm. is again what I'm sure. I feel like I say this every week, but Universal Experience. Someone, if you grew up in the 80s or 90s, you or someone that you knew had that print of that Boulevard of Broken Dreams mm. in their house. Yeah. Where it had James Dean, Elvis, Marilyn Monroe, mm. and I can't, I don't know who else it was. And it was like all of them being served at a at a bar. Yeah. And I, I bet you yep. can picture the exact one that I'm I, talking about. I can about. see it in my mind, yeah. And we have one in my house when I was growing up. <laughs> and I am absolutely, like, I would be shocked to meet anybody of our age who did not, who cannot picture the exact print I'm speaking about because if you didn't have it, your auntie had it. Or Someone your, had it. Or your yeah. uncle had it in his pool room. As soon as you started describing it, I never had it, but it conjured yeah, yeah. the image immediately. Yeah, your uncle so had it. I, I your uncle exactly had it saying, in yeah. like the room that he had his pool table <laughs> yeah. or in his garage or something. Like somewhat, your next door neighbor had it behind yeah. the bar that they had fully stocked within access of the children. <laughs> it's, I'm sure that I am positive that's universal. Yeah, yeah, I, I think so. I think it's a fairly yeah. universal yeah, but experience. But that's my only experience. I mean, James mm. Dean, I guess you could say he kind of you know, looked over me my entire childhood, but I don't know anything about him. So this is nice. Well, I'm going to teach you a little bit more about James Dean. Uh, Uncle Jimmy, we should have called uh, him. Uncle Jimmy. (laughs) So he became the first actor to receive a posthumous Academy Award nomination for Best Actor. Yep. For his role in East of Eden. And upon receiving a second nomination for his role in Giant the following year, he became the only actor to this date to have two posthumous acting nominations at the uh, Academy Awards. At the Oscars, which uh, I, th- I think is is quite quite cool. Very impressive. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So aside from acting, James's second great love was motor racing. Mm-hmm. In 1954, he became interested in developing a career in motorsport. Okay. He purchased various vehicles after filming for East of Eden had concluded, including a Triumph Tiger T110 and a Porsche 350. Five six or three fifty six. I apologize. I'm not a big car guy, mm. so there are probably people going. It's not a three five six. It's a three fifty six. Sorry. Yeah, my apologies. Just before filming began on Rebel Without a Cause, he competed in his first professional event at the Palm Springs Road Races, which was held in Palm Springs, California, on the twenty sixth of March in nineteen fifty five. Dean actually achieved first place in the novice class and second place in the main event. Mm. Pretty good, Jimmy. For his first go, yeah, he he seemed to have a natural affinity for motorsport. Mm. I'm sure that his sort of reckless approach to life probably didn't... It probably helped him because he didn't have the fear that a lot of people would have when they are behind the wheel of such a powerful fast vehicle absolutely and and unsafe as well you have to remember these are cars in the 50s oh yeah no airbags <laughs> they're t- purely like there's no crump like crumple zones like if you hit someone you're absorbing all the shock yeah absolutely yeah that's right so his racing career continued in bakersfield a month later where he finished first in his class and third overall and he had hoped to compete in the indianapolis 500 which i think if you've never watched it you have at least heard the name yeah. indianapolis 500 it's yeah. very famous 
like world famous motor race. I try to block out most things related to <laughs> motor racing, but sure, I've heard of it. So he wanted to compete in it, but unfortunately his busy schedule made it impossible for him to compete. His final race occurred in Santa Barbara on Memorial Day, May 30th, 1955. He was unable to finish the competition due to a blown piston, and his brief career was then put on hold when Warner Brothers barred him from all racing during the production of Giant, which was, as you remember, the third and final film that he produced. Yeah, that was probably a good call from Warner Brothers. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Especially in hindsight. Especially, you know, given what we're about to start talking about. So once Dean had finished shooting his scenes and the movie was in post-production, he decided it was time to start racing again. Yeah, because clearly the prefrontal cortex of his brain was not fully developed yet. I, I think that's quite possible. Yeah. yeah. Uh, armchair psychology. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. I'm literally, I am literally feeling like an armchair. I'm like reclining back in my chair, just holding the microphone, making my, making my clinical notes. <laughs> so in 1955, Dean traded in his speedster for a new, faster and more powerful 1955 Porsche 550 Spider and entered the upcoming Selena's Road Race event scheduled for October 1st to 2nd, 1955. Okay. Interestingly, the 550 was Porsche's first ever road legal race car. What about the other ones? They, they, weren't... Weren't, they weren't road legal. They had to be trailered to and from oh, events. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, so this was the first car that they had ever produced that was like... A racing car, but you could also drive. It was it like a road. daily. You could drive to the Water Brothers lot, and then you could go race it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and it's the reason that the Porsche brand has become a household name. Okay. Ultimately, it's what they attribute to the explosion of popularity of the Porsche brand, especially in the United States. Gotcha. James named the car the Little Bastard as a reference to Jack Warner from Warner Brothers referring to James as a little bastard on the set of East of Eden. It's pretty funny. Apparently what happened was there was a scene he was supposed to shoot. He refused to come out of his trailer and uh, Jack Warner was said, said, what a little bastard. And yeah. then, so... Being, it's pretty deaverish behavior for someone with two movies under his yeah, belt, to and, be but, honest. But being the rebellious, devious person that he was known to be, decided mm. to lead into it and name his, his new sports car, uh, the little bastard. Mm. This is where the story starts getting a little bit eerie. Okay. So Dean showed the little bastard off to fellow actor Sir Alec Guinness, who you're... It makes me so sad that you're just looking at me with a blank face. <laughs> That's how I always look at you. Sure. Well, you always look at me when you're like, I don't know this man. I don't know what this is. <laughs> it's a mild look of terror because I have PTSD <laughs> from the last time you did this to me and then we interviewed the person the next day. Well, we won't be interviewing Sir Alec Guinness because he is well and truly dead. Right. <laughs> I mean, I'm not happy to hear that, but I'm also happy to hear that you won't be springing another surprise guest on me who I mortified myself by not knowing who they were. So some of our uh, listeners would recognize that name as the original Obi-Wan Kenobi from the Star Wars movies. Oh, gosh, no. Yeah, not, not me. Not for you. <laughs> yeah. Not over here. So he he met, uh, Guinness and, and Dean met just in a chance encounter at the restaurant where the car was being delivered to. So the car was being d- delivered by Porsche to the restaurant I imagine so that Dean could have his moment, be mm. flashy, all of that sort of stuff. So at this point, James had never driven the car. Mm. And it was during this meeting that James received an ominous, ominous, an ominous warning with Guinness imploring James never to drive the car, saying, if you get in that car, you'll be found dead in it by this time next week. What? Mm. Uh, interestingly, 
that is a direct quote. Um, I was about to call him Obi-Wan Kenobi. <laughs> that was a direct quote from, from Mr. Obi- Kenobi. <laughs> uh, Alec Guinness went on a talk show in the UK and there's it's on YouTube. There's actually a recording of him talking about this interaction. Right. So, so, so speaking about it, obviously, after it happened. Yes. Yeah, yeah, okay. Absolutely, yeah. So that's what he says he said. But do we sure. know he said that? I mean, he's Obi-Wan Kenobi. He's he's a Jedi master. Yeah, okay. Whatever that means. <laughs> so as the Salinas road race was taking place only a week after James purchased the car, James took every opportunity he could to get behind the wheel so he could gain experience in the driver's seat. Mm-hmm. So he, along with his racing team that was comprised of Rolf Wuthrich, who was a Porsche factory trained mechanic, and Bill Hickman, who was Dean's stuntman and also a photographer, decided that instead of trailering the car to the race, because it was the first road legal car, that James should drive the car down to Salinas from Hollywood to break the engine in and to get him more experience with the car. Mm. So at around 1pm on the 30th of September, James set off from Competition Motors, which was the workshop that prepared the car for the race. So they did some work to the to the engine uh, and to other parts of the car, but they also painted the car in this like silver, like this silver metallic paint uh, with this red pinstripe down the side. They put tartan seats on the uh, on the interior, and they hand wrote the word "little bastard" on the front of the grill. Mm. So he had Rolf in the passenger seat with him and Bill was following in Dean's station wagon. So they were originally going to use Dean's station wagon to tow the car down. Yeah. Last minute they said, actually, no, let's let's drive it down. James, you do it. Ooh, bad call. Yeah. So at around 3.30 p.m. that day, both James and Bill uh, were stopped by a highway patrolman and fined for speeding. Oh, my God. Mm. And the signs keep coming and they don't stop coming. That's Jay, it. Uncle Jimmy, get out of the car. <laughs> and unfortunately, at about 5.45 p.m., Dean was barreling along Route 46 at an estimated 85 miles per hour. Oh, that's... Can you... Un- can you... Un- yeah, can I metric Imperial- that for yeah, you? Yeah, can you metric that up for us? It's about 130 kilometers an hour. Okay. Which... Oh, it's very fast. It is very fast. And you might think in modern cars, we well, do 110 on a freeway. Mm. That's fine. Again, this is... This is not a freeway, though, I assume. N- no, no, it's not. And they, I don't even think freeways existed yet. No. And, well, we, we talked about in the Playboy episode that the freeway... That's right. Was Led in to the, the 70s, rise of the, the serial killer. The serial yeah, killer. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The things you learn on this I podcast. I know. <laughs> so... Estimated 85 miles per hour. He'd left the station wagon in the dust by this point. When, at this point, uh, a young student from California Polytechnic State University named Donald Turnipseed decided to make a sudden turn onto the road uh, and James couldn't avoid the collision. Mm. The impact sent Turnipseed's car about 40 feet down the road and it ejected Rolf from the Porsche. Mm. Rolf was lucky he was ejected from the Porsche because he actually survived. Wow. Dean... Unfortunately, not so lucky. He yeah. suffered a broken neck and a fractured skull, and he was pronounced dead on arrival at the Paso Robles War Memorial Hospital at 6.20 p.m., which was exactly seven days after the ominous warning from Alec Guinness. Far mm. out. Yeah. That is, did, sorry, just going back a step. Did Alec Guinness mm. ever speak about 
like, why did he say that? What prompted him to say that? He did. He said, and I don't have the direct quote, but mm. basically the look of the car, it looked, it looked evil and menacing. Oh, okay. Yeah. So it wasn't just a, oh, this is a young reckless dude and... and sense a great disturbance yeah. in the force. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, no, so it was actually, he actually got a bad and ominous feeling from the car itself. And he also said that the feeling he got, the energy that he got from the car being like dark and, and, and twist. I can't remember his, I don't want to misquote him, but it was something mm. along those lines. He said it was a juxtaposition to James's warm, vibrant energy. Yeah, right. And, that, and he just said, promise me you'll never drive it. Because- Do you think that, that that his retelling has become embellished, embellished with... With time and with knowing, like, do you think that if he hadn't passed away, mm. that that's a that version of events would still be the same? Really good question. I think if there's anything that we've learned through the course of doing mm. now eleven episodes of this podcast is that there's probably a good chance that a lot of these curses do get embellished yeah. over time. So I just love. I would just I I understand like what the research that we do can because it's around curses and whatever can be hard to get citation and yeah, clarification on. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It can be hard to like, you can get sources, but mm. it's sometimes difficult to get multiple people agreeing to the exact same details. Sure. But in this particular case, I would love for there to be one person who's like, I was at the restaurant that night and I heard that conversation. Yeah. I Cause think- like if that, if, if someone else heard it and mm. can say that that actually happened word for word, that is eerie very eerie i think i mean it's kind of eerie regardless right and i think that it is provided that it happened sure absolutely i think though that that would make your job at the end of this quite easy right yeah, if, if, if all if all of this had like evidence and yeah. stuff like gen- i wouldn't even need to be here you could just speak into your good microphone no one even need <laughs> wouldn't even need me on the shit that's, microphone that's right exactly so after dean's death the little bastard was deemed a total write-off like a like in terms of insurance, it was it was written off as a oh, car. Yeah. yeah, George Barris, who was the man that customized the spider originally for James, actually bought the wrecked carcass of the little bastard for twenty five hundred dollars. Doesn't sound like a lot of money, but given that James bought the car originally for around, from the research I could find, a Porsche five fifty spider in nineteen fifty five was around about six thousand dollars. So for a complete write-off wrecked piece of, yeah. of you know, of, of car, it was quite a lot of money to, to, to pay. Was there a reason in, like, was it just having a morbid piece of history? So from what I could tell, and we'll get into this a little bit more when we mm. get into to counterpoints, Barris is a bit of a hustler and, uh, and a little bit of a, you know, I think he was just trying to make a name for himself in Hollywood and yeah. he was quite a flashy guy. So being able to say that he owned the car that James Dean had died in kind of gave him clout. I, I don't think. get that. Yeah. I don't get that. People pay, uh, what was I looking at recently? People pay for like, if we're going back to like a true crime mm. realm, Serial killers' artwork and letters and things that they've done. Like people literally were Stuff paying from Jack the Ripper or and, yeah. um, John Wayne Gacy because yeah. he used to do all those clown art 
things. I don't yeah. know if anyone's familiar with him. He's like the the clown killer. Mm. But yeah, he would do all this artwork and he did them obviously prior to going into jail and, and in jail. And people pay money for them and people pay all this money for these really gruesome artifacts and I just yeah. don't get it. I'm like, why would you either. want to own something like that? It just feels like even if you don't believe in curses or anything like that, it just feels... Why bring that into your life? It just feels yucky. It just feels really yucky. Especially when it's like things that were maybe in the house where someone died or whatever. It's like these these are things that, you know, belongs to people who suffered really horrible, yeah. gruesome fates. Like yeah. it I do not I d I don't I don't understand it. Yeah, it's yeah. just a weird, like morbid fascination. And I just mm. I can't imagine paying money. There was very recently a and you've got to attribute this to the I guess populari- popularization, popular yep, rise yep. of of the true crime genre. Mm. There was a recently released coloring book of serial killers, and, and there's okay. a real. I think that there. Look, what we do is we talk about these things and we t- sort of examine them and and chat about them. But yeah. we don't, I don't fetishize think we, them. Well, I don't think we glamorize them no. or, or give any glory to anyone who's who's committed anything horrible or no, or look not. at it from like a yeah I, I just there's this there's a line I think when yeah. you're looking and I know that we don't do true crime but a lot of the time we are speaking about stuff, stuff like that can be gruesome it could be a little bit yeah. adjacent or it can sure. overlap even yep. and I just think that yeah it's it's a weird it's like we've mm. become so desensitized yeah. to the fact that there's there are victims behind this a lot of the time. Yeah. Mm. So once um, George Barris had purchased the car, it was transported back to to his shop. The car slipped off the trailer and broke the leg of a mechanic. It's so, not really the mechanic's fault, is it? No, but it seemed like literally from the get-go, there's already yeah, more retribution. The little bastard returns. Mm, yeah. So, George then sold the engine of the car to Dr. William Esrich, who installed it into his Lotus 11 race car. So, apparently the engines were compatible and he installed it in his Lotus 11. At the same time, George sold the transmission and the suspension to Dr. Troy McHenry. And the reason both of these men wanted these parts was because they were both entering the 1956 Panoma sports car race. Uh, so they enter the race, both of them, with parts from the little bastard in their cars. Mm. Estridge would crash when the engine catastrophically failed in the very first lap. Uh, luckily, he survived the incident, but he was seriously injured. McHenry wasn't so lucky with the transmission locking up and sending him into a head-on collision with the only tree on the track. Yeah. And McHenry was killed instantly. Why are you planting trees near racetracks or building racetracks and not clearing trees? Yeah, that's a really good question. (laughs) It just feels like you're tempting fate, honestly. Yeah, yeah. Or just, no, let's just keep one. (laughs) Just just a nod to to the environment. Maybe Uh, that one tree will suck all the carbon dioxide out of the air that we're emitting through all of these fossil fuels. Oh, this was the this was the fifties. Yeah, <laughs> they they didn't know anything about that. True. I mean, Thanks I'm, a lot, boomers. I'm sure someone did. <laughs> so it was actually these two crashes that started the belief that the little bastard carried a curse. So we talk about origins. This is when it started, kind of. Well, that's getting... four. We've got four incidents now, right? That's right. Yeah. yeah. 
So Barra still had two tires from the the 550 Spider that were untouched or unaffected from the accident, the original accident that James Dean was in. He sold those to a, a, a different car owner. And not long after, both blew out simultaneously, which caused the new owner's car to run off the road. Mm. So apart from the engine, the transmission and the tires, Barris still had the rest of the car, which at this point was, it's just like a... What's left? It's a it's just like a crumple, like the, the, the chassis and, yeah, and you I, know all of that yeah. sort of stuff. And it caught the attention of two would-be thieves. Mm. So two people thought, oh, you know, we can probably get ourselves some memorabilia or sell it on or whatever. One of the thieves' arms was torn open trying to steal the steering wheel. Uh, and the other was injured trying to remove the seat that was still stained with James Deans's blood. And the name of those thieves? The Sticky Bandits. <laughs> So due to all of these incidents involving the little bastard, Barris decided to hide the car for, and it stayed hidden for, for a number of years. But he was convinced by the California Highway Patrol to lend the car to a highway safety exhibition or exhibit, which conducted a gruesome tour of cinemas, high schools, and bowling alleys, warning about the dangers of speeding. Yeah. Yeah. I mean... I know when you have been caught speeding occasionally, especially in the States, they make you watch like a, a road safety thing yeah. and there's always gruesome crashes and stuff. I think it's supposed to be kind of just like, it's like a shock, shock thing. therapy. Yeah? yeah. Yeah. We we do it here. Like yeah. when I was in high school, we did um, like a whole day of driver ed where they did all this. Yeah. But it's like a video, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah but it's videos. It's like am- like Ambo's coming in and, yeah. and highway patrol and showing photos and mm. telling stories and things like that. And it's, it's meant to scare you. It's like sure. scared straight, but for road safety. <laughs> yeah. But imagine having the uh, an actual car where someone has died and a famous person has died, like in your school gymnasium. Mm. That's, that seems pretty grim. Yeah. yeah. It's kind of like um, the PE teacher doing sex ed in Mean Girls. Don't have sex, you will get chlamydia and die. <laughs> so the first exhibit was actually unsuccessful uh, because the garage that was housing the car caught fire and burnt it down to the ground. Mysteriously, the only car to survive was the little bastard, which suffered virtually no damage from the mm. fire. During the tour, many people received cuts and abrasions when touching the wreckage. So that, well, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a piece of scrap metal. One exhibition at a high school ended abruptly when the car fell off its display and broke a nearby student's hip. Ooh, a hip? Yep. Ooh. So I don't know how close he was getting, seeing if he could get all the way under <laughs> it, and then it fell down. I, I don't know. While being transported to one of the tour events, a man named George Bacuis uh, was hauling the wreckage of the spider on a flatbed truck, and he was killed instantly when the Porsche fell on him after he was thrown from his truck in an accident. Wow. Mm. In 1960, the twisted debris of Little Bastard was on loan to a safety exhibition in Miami. And following the exhibit, the wreckage in the truck that was hauling it mysteriously vanished on the way back to Los Angeles. Both the driver of the truck and the Little Bastard itself have never been seen again. Oh, it's it's gone. It's dis- It has disappeared and no one knows where it is. Oh my god! Mm. What a strange ending. Yeah, uh, a few little postscripts, or, or you know, just 
fun facts about the overall story. Rolf, the man who was in the passenger seat, mm. uh, who was the Porsche trained uh, technician or mechanic, actually died in a motor vehicle accident 10 years later while he was working for Porsche. So he, I think he was testing one of their cars and, mm. and died in an accident. Interestingly, only I think last year or the year before, a, a component of the little bastard was discovered in a barn or a warehouse or something like that, and it sold at auction for over three hundred thousand American dollars. Wow! And how do they know that it was the little bastard? They were able to match the the number on it to the okay. the number of the the, the serial number. Yes, or whatever. yeah, that's right. Vid number. Yeah, that's it. I don't think I. I mean, it's probably called VIN number, right? Yeah, I don't know. Vehicle identification I number. Isn't that what it stands it, for? Yeah, it does. I just think back then that it was called a, a chassis number. Yeah, yeah. Same thing. Same thing. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that's the story of the little bastard. Mm. So before we get into counterpoints, where are you, what are you thinking right now? Well, I think that it's always my usual thing, right? Where I'm like, oh, you know, if you do, it's like, it can be distilled down to fuck around and find out or sure, play silly games, win silly prizes. Yep. However... A large majority of these accidents were occurring in very routine things like transporting the car mm. or in or when it was at a safety exhibition. Yeah. Or what uh, about even not before it even got to the exhibition there was a fire and it burnt everything apart from the car. Yeah, that's that's a bit weird. Like yeah. those that those accidents didn't happen while people were engaging in any risk taking behavior. Yeah. They weren't it wasn't like seven people raced this car and seven people crashed it like yeah. you know, that's like oh that's that's high. That's a high number of you know, unfortunate incidents, but it's not outside the realm of possibility when you've got a, a high powered vehicle. Yeah. Um, and you're racing. But yeah, that's it's pretty weird. Mm. It's pretty weird. Pretty weird. Yeah. So we're gonna take a quick break, uh, and we'll come back with some counterpoints. And we're back. Hello. Hi. So we're going to get into counterpoints now. And Amy, I know in the past you have just kind of casually mentioned that you've usually kind of got an idea in your head mm. as to whether it is a curse or coincidence before we even get into counterpoints. Yeah. This week, it's a pretty big one. Pretty big oh. counterpoint. Oh, hit me. So hopefully you haven't made your mind up yet or I might be able, I might be about to, uh, to completely throw a wrench in the works for oh, you. Oh, I'm very fickle. <laughs> My mind can easily be changed. I can turn. I can turn on an absolute dime. Okay, so much of the history of the little bastard since George Barris purchased the written-off wreckage is unsubstantiated. Nah. And many believe that the gruesome history of the car was either embellished or even completely made up by George. So all the... It fell off and broke some kid's dancing hip and yep, all that Yep, it fell off the stuff. trailer and crushed a leg and it, 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 all, all of that... Very little of it is actually substantiated. Right. You might wonder, well, why would George do something like this? But why? Why would this man who brought this gruesome artifact possibly... What could he possibly have to gain by embellishing the gruesome history of this thing? So you asked me before, why did he purchase it? Yeah. I have a theory. Oh, this will be good. <laughs> so my theory is that when he purchased it, he believe that he was going to be able to restore it mm. and maybe resell it, do something with it. Who knows? Make some profit. When he realized that he was unable to restore it and he would never be able to get it roadworthy again, I think he there's a possibility that he embellished 
the this curse and or at least allow this curse to propagate in the zeitgeist as a way to recover the cost of the car after it was deemed unsalvageable that's gross that's it really gross but as we said you know george was a clout chaser and um i mean credit where credit's due he was kind of seen as like the car guy of hollywood like he Mm. he did all of the 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 detailing and all of the the car work for a lot of Hollywood production. So he yeah. was known in Hollywood before this. Mm. Um, but yeah, from what I've read, it seems like that that is a possibility. Yeah, that's the only counterpoint I have, but I think it's a pretty compelling one. Yeah, it's pretty compelling. So Amy, I'm going to hand over to you. The curse of the little bastard. Is it truly a curse, or is it just a coincidence? Well, like I said. On the face of it, because of the fact that all of these different things happened in different circumstances are, you know, a pattern. Mm. There's a pattern emerging. But of course, if we don't have any substantiation, and I, I mean even like, you know, there's a difference between an embellishment mm. and a straight out lie. 100%. Right? So yeah. if there was like a kid... If they, if there was credibility to the story, and it's like, oh, uh, the char- the the teenager himself who was injured said, oh yeah, that happened, but I was I like kicked the jack out from underneath because I was doing the hand jive with some girl <laughs> at the sock hop. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I don't know how effort- how you just effortlessly just switched into like fifties car it just, lingo. It just flew through right through me. It's probably all those years being looked off over by Uncle Jimmy and. Auntie Marilyn. Yeah, and and probably also like watching Grease on repeat as a young girl. (laughs) Yeah, which is so not an appropriate movie for children in case anyone was wondering. Thanks a lot, Mum. TV raised me. (laughs) Literally. So, look, I think... And again, the other really convincing, possibly convincing piece of evidence or the eerie, the real eerie thing was Mr. Kenobi... Mm. Using his Jedi mind powers. Yep. Whatever. I don't know. Sensing a great disturbance yeah. in the force. <laughs> uh, making that very eerie premonition or having that very eerie premonition and making that prediction. But again, he goes on a, on a talk show. Many, many, many decades later. Sure. And talks about it. Mm. That's a good story. Mm. But there was if there was no record of that actually happening Mm. i mean 30 years later 40 years later he's got nothing to lose by except just the ickiness of saying that he predicted james dean's death Mm. and lying about it yeah i think this one look it's it's probably got to be a coincidence right Mm. like even i can't really find a a genuine angle like I can't even play, I can't play the curse angle with this mm. one. You know, yeah. I don't think, I know that I've said before that like, okay. So if we take Robert the doll, for example, mm. when we talk about how objects can, you know, attract, be infused with yeah, imbued energy. With energy yeah. I don't think that's the case here. Mm. I mean, James Dean was doing something. He was engaging risk taking behavior. Yes. And he was very, and it doesn't mean that what happened to him wasn't tragic, Mm. but unfortunately, when you do engage in risk-taking behavior, the chances of something happening Mm. are much greater. And again, especially, I mean, motorsports is an inherently risky 
sport and it has led to many deaths and many serious serious injuries like you can look as early as Etten Senna and, and a lot of the Formula One race drivers in the 80s and 90s I think they say that with motor racing and motorbikes even just on roads it's it's kind of not a matter of if but when yeah everyone who rides motorbikes will tell you they'll have an accident there is no point. if mm. when you're and I know that we're not talking about motorbikes but sure. that is also another sort of it's just inherently riskier being yeah. on the road in a motorbike and it's inherently riskier being in a, a, a car when you're going at high speeds and you're racing competitively. Mm. And people who engage in that kind of stuff will often tell you it is not a case of if but when. Yeah. it's I, I keep coming back to just the, the difference in how safe all forms of vehicles were then and that's the other yeah that's the other variable as well like we said right up the top like the the safety features that we have in cars now Mm. just did not exist back then you know if you look at if you look at this car and look at pictures of it which you can find online and and maybe we'll just drop a picture of it Mm. in our instagram feeds in case people want to look at it uh it's literally it just looks like a silver bullet with a rocket attached to it Mm. and a like a hard timber dashboard and a reasonably inexperienced driver at least i mean he was experienced in the sense that he had had competed in motorsports before a couple of times though sure uh and and done quite well maybe it was a case of you know he just more ass than class as they mm. as they say uh maybe just his reckless spirit kind of got him got him over the line in, in some of those those races who knows but i, th- I think that he was even what an hour or two hours before his his untimely death he was pulled over for speeding yeah and again there's a difference between testing the limits of a car on a race race track track and doing it in public where there are things like other cars and and other motors other variables that you can't control 100 percent. yeah i agree i think that for all of those reasons and the fact that I can't even remember his name, the man that, that purchased the George Barris, George Barris, mm. our friend, Mr. Barris does not seem to be the most scrupulous and upstanding citizen among us. <laughs> or the so, most reliable narrator. either. Or the most reliable narrator. So for all of those reasons, I, th- I think that I'm going to have to call this one a coincidence. Well, there you have it. So thanks once again for tuning in. And as always, you can find us on Instagram and TikTok. Uh, if you search for all one word, that cursed pod. And uh, until next week, stay cursed. Thanks, everyone. <laughs>